For March 8th, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 88, Career Advice for Busta Rhymes. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. <laughs> From the left coast of America, where it is past 9 p.m. at night, and the Oscars have just wrapped up with a, a surprise win for Up in the Best Picture category. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, I'm your host, Matthew Rather, and I'm here with Peter Fenzel. Yes. Peter Fenzel, the, the only overthinking podcaster Coast. intrepid enough to join us past midnight uh, uh, past midnight on the East Coast. The others are all wimps and weaklings. That is because our listeners deserve 110%. And if I don't do it, there's a thousand podcasters in India who will be willing to do this at a moment's notice. <laughs> it's the middle of the day there, so I gotta put out there, I gotta up the productivity, man. I gotta be up there on that wall. Yeah. Now, not to begrudge the Indian podcasters, for if they were not formidable, I would not fear their competition. <laughs> so I'm sure they're quite good at their craft. Uh, so yes, but Oscars, Academy you know, Awards. Uh, I mean, sorry, no, you've, we've, you've plunged us down this rat hole. Let's talk about Indian outsourcing for a little, a little bit. Right? <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about so, supply chain management. Can we choose well, here's the thing about like the American workforce and Indian outsourcing, right? The the line, the reassuring line has been for some time, um, uh, has been that you know, well, okay, these uh, sort of menial tasks or technical tasks like call centers or you know basic computer programming, um, you know, these can be done, these can be outsourced, but the design, the creative work, the good old. Uh, you know, the good old, uh, old fashioned idea stuff, uh, that's still got to be done by Americans. And I submit to you that the, uh, the culture that produced Salman Rushdie does not need your help. You know, <laughs> he's Indian, right? He is, he, is he Indian? Is Salman Rushdie Indian? Yeah. God, and that's, you know, me, I feel like we might have broken a big story and, there. And what? totally, uh, watch me be wrong and totally insensitive. <laughs> Pete, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay, I, now you're making me regret this rat hole. But, you know, there is enough fantastic art and culture that has come out of India that, you know, they are not at a loss for uh, brilliant ideas of their own, is is my point. So, oh, you yeah, know, he, he's Indian, by the way. He is yeah, Indian. You're that's what yes. I thought. And the, yeah. um, and the uh, you know, that, that culture is not really hurting for uh, fantastic, fantastic ideas. So, uh, if anything, the, the situation is worse uh, than we were led to believe ah, whatever you know that's usually the case but it's also better in certain ways too yeah so, we still have our health so well, <laughs> as, as it were. not if the republicans have their way oh, oh no come on. Uh, getting into, oh, getting into politics that's a that's a bad idea okay pete uh you you were right we should have gone into oscar territory all <laughs> again the awards right, red carpet right away. i'm actually wearing donatella versace tonight um <laughs> i've got a, uh, a nice scoop back going on with uh you know, I got a, like, it's sort of a 20s, it's like an 18, it's more like a 1620s kind of deal, like very pre-Westphalian, you know, with like a high collar made out of kind of muslin and burlap, uh, you know, just to make sure that nobody accidentally spots me walking around and wants to run me through with a with a halberd or a glaive guss arm. That's really say, the retro look I'm going for. Whenever, whenever I hear someone say, who are you wearing? You know, I, I keep expecting a kind of Hannibal Lecterish response to that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and like that, Dustin that Diamond, bad. he was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Grok1 in the chat room is calling me out, uh, complimenting me for using Chrome, which you can see in the uh, which you can see in the UStream live feed. You know, we do the show on UStream, right? Every night, uh, usually six fifteen p.m. Pacific, uh, eight uh, nine fifteen Eastern on. Uh, on Sunday nights. Now, of course, it's considerably later than that. But uh, hey, uh, Grok One. It's uh, I'm running uh, not just Chrome, but but the uh, the nightly builds. I'm running the Chromium nightly builds. So uh, you know, hey, geek pride. Hey, Pete. Yo. Uh, the winner of the Academy Award for Best Overthinking It Podcaster on the East Coast goes to. Peter Fenzel. Oh, oh, thank you. Uh, you Who know, do you want to thank Pete? I, you know, I, I just want to. I want to thank the Academy, and I want to thank Jim Cameron. You know, for being just having a man of vision. Uh, you know, because he just he does these things, and he tells people to do stuff, and it's like it's like they do it because they want to, in addition to the fact that they have to, because he's their employer. And I want to thank the Academy for giving this award out. Not you know, not to, not because of politics, right? Not just because I happen to be a member of a particularly important block that's kind of underrepresented. Not that I'm a pick that makes other people comfortable about picking other groups for other awards. No, because I'm really the handsomest and the best podcaster <laughs> on the East Coast. And I appreciate that you're giving it out for that. And I appreciate, uh, I want to thank Isaac Asimov uh, <laughs> for being a great grandfather of science fiction, just one of the grandmasters, you know, really great historical allegorist, and he writes really good nonfiction too. Um, and I want to thank all the people out there in uniform, you know, like like the stripper cops and the stripper firemen and the uh, the stripper nurses and the sexy nurses, uh, male and female sexy nurses. Because you know what? Men can be sexy nurses, too. Uh, and, oh, is that my time? Is that the music? <laughs> Somebody playing my song? Uh, Matt, Matt Rather. Matt, uh, the winner of uh, Best Overthinking It podcaster on the West Coast goes to Matthew Rather. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> who do you want to thank, buddy? Who do you who are you gonna thank tonight? Uh I I want to thank um I want to thank the financier of my of my film because <laughs> you know I, I no I you know I don't want to thank anyone. I want to congratulate us all for our bravery in uh <laughs> Being in the entertainment industry is an incredibly risky thing to do. And every day we uh, risk that when we get to the craft services table, they may not have the brand of, of organic yogurt that we like. And we may have to go with another brand of organic yogurt or horror of horrors, even a non-organic yogurt. Uh, you know, so, um, you know, so I'm just saying – Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah, that was kind of the question thing. Who do you want to thank? There were some ridiculous acceptance speeches, I thought. Oh, yeah? Which one were the, I mean, remember, I missed – we'll get to this in a bit, but I missed the first 45 minutes of the Oscars. Let's start in there. Uh, How did you yeah. – because I, actually now that we're like live video streaming and all this stuff, um, this, is a, this is actually really on point. So uh, how did you experience the Oscars? Okay, so my first issue is that uh, I don't have cable television. Uh, I had Dish Network for a while. We got rid of Dish Network. We haven't replaced it with cable yet. It's sort of our long-term plan to do that. Um, but we have rabbit ears. We have broadcast TV. And also we have the Internet. And uh, the Internet has taken up so much of our media 
consumption that there's really not a pressing need to plunk down another $100 a month so that I can watch whatever episode of a rerun of The Shield I'm going to watch on like a given week if it's even going to happen. I don't watch TV all that much it's not really worth the cost like the cost is really high so as much as i'd like to have tv like it's kind of a low priority right now um so i sat down for the oscars and i i, I follow um roger ebert on the twitters sure uh, who is great roger ebert great twitterer fantastic and, and, um, uh, and great writer too a guy who's really come into his own since his uh since his illness and surgeries yeah yeah he really has he definitely really has and it's it's i mean it's unfortunate because it's because he can't talk that he has to write right uh, all the time but um but he had mentioned that there were a bunch of ways to watch the oscars for free online in one of his tweets today so i was like oh great i'll just watch the oscars online so i was watching the ap the associated press red carpet live stream uh assuming that when it was over it was going to go to the actual oscars it didn't um so um it uh, it didn't go to the oscars it just ended and at that point i was like oh crap there's no way for me to watch the oscars so i went outside and i tried to get my rabbit ears to work and try to pick up the Boston affiliate for ABC and uh, that didn't work uh, I started texting and emailing people calling people um, uh, oh, are you watching the Oscars and people really generally weren't or they weren't available um, Schechner offered to let me watch them from his lab um, which I think was kind of not a sincere offer <laughs> um, uh, because that would not have been appropriate I don't want to be messing around with that stuff Um so, so yeah, so I was starting to, I was just putting on my, pa- my, uh, my, uh, my pants. I guess that's true. I was putting on my pants. I'd been wearing shorts because I went to play Frisbee this afternoon. And I was getting my jacket on to go out and look out some bars to see if any of the bars were playing the Oscars. And um, when I was leaving, I saw that my roommate had gotten a streaming site up. And uh, he showed me what it was. And it was channelsurfing.net, which is probably not doing things on the up and up. And I was streaming Canadian and British television that was showing the Oscars. So I ended up watching, for much of it, this Canadian broadcast, and then I ended up watching uh, Sky Movies, which is a British premium cable network, which is heavily sponsored by Booze, I think. Um, so, and there was sort of like Moe Sky, ads. Like S-K-Y-Y movies? Yeah, no, we know it wasn't spelled that way, so I don't think it was actually Sky Liquor, but it was like all champagne ads, um, and like some Rice Krispie ads, too. It was all champagne and Rice Krispies. Uh, which was kind of crazy, and um, they had they would break in every once in a while with this really insipid commentary from these like four like adult British people who were like vaguely fashionable, and I had no idea who they were. Okay. And they were in this like really futuristic looking place where the woman was in a chair that looked like a half of a plastic bowl turned at a forty five degree angle. And everyone else was on a white couch, and they were all talking about um, how much they liked Avatar. Um, <laughs> and one of them kept talking about, "Yeah, I really like." So these are these are your people. Is what you're oh, saying? Yeah, obviously. You know me. I'm a big Anglophile. Um, but anyway, yeah, like <laughs> and a big so, Avatarophile. Yeah. So I've been sitting here on my computer with my headset on, live tweeting like a madman um, after my sort of adventure through various technologies, trying to get that to work. Um, that's my experience. So I mean, the lesson, the takeaway is is that you know this Oscar event was not just on TV and at the auditorium in Los Angeles. It was something that had sort of um, really and truly dispersed across media. Like when I thought about the different places that I went to try to figure out how to watch the Oscars, is there something I can do on my phone? Is there something I can do on my computer? Like, am I taking it over the airwaves and am I getting it through a wire? Am I getting it in any of the number of venues that might be showing? We will it? fight them over a wire. We will yeah. fight them on the airwaves. We will fight them, etc. Exactly, but you're you're seeing a real a dev- devolution, and I don't mean that in terms of de-evolution, but devolution, as in like things are being devolved, moved farther away from the center, um, 
uh, to, of, of how these things are being distributed. And one of the big problems with um, the, the Oscars was the big battle between Cablevision and ABC, which kept people from New York from watching it, right? I, did you hear the final verdict on that? Did they actually get to watch it? Um, if you're on the streaming and you heard the update on that, if you're from New York, uh, I'm from Boston, we weren't part of that. But basically, so uh, there was that, a... Oh, well, I, I think I... I I read a tweet or I read something on Deadline Hollywood that um, uh, that like 45 minutes into at 8:45 Eastern time when the Oscar ceremony had been on for 15 minutes, they had reached an agreement and uh, ABC and ABC and uh, Cablevision had reached Disney that is to say and Cablevision had reached yeah. an agreement and so they were uh, finally uh, going to put um, going to put it on. Yeah, yeah, and that's really interesting because the the disagreement was about the cable fees that were being paid to ABC for the content. Right. Um, and the idea is that, and this is, and if you look at the bottom line, there's a great article in New York Times about NBC and MSNBC and the the big the job cuts over at ABC News, um, and this idea that one of the big ways that people are making money right now in media is these cable subscription subscription fees. And as I fully well know, cable is very expensive, which is why I don't have it. Um, and, and I think that what this really shows um, is that as people become content creators, the price of content goes down, the market price. And the only people who are going to really be able to make really solid profit margins are going to be people who are monopolists. And you know who's a monopolist? The cable company is a monopolist. It is going to force you to pay whatever they want you to pay. Right. Um, and, and they yeah, you'll find so, when you get cable, yeah. you'll find that your bills are about three or four times as high as your Dish Network bill was. Yeah, I mean the main the main reason we would want to get cable was because we also have DSL, which just sucks, um, and and which you've probably heard in the quality of my my podcasting is not so good. Well, the, the and we get it sound from, quality you know, is fine. Your your video has been frozen for the last ten yeah. minutes, though. Yeah, I don't even know what, what's going on with that. Well, Tiger, turn it off and turn it back on, and we'll we'll see if we can we'll see if we can get it back and shine a light on your face so as we can so as we can see you and stuff. All right. That I that I might not be. I don't have any kind of a flashlight to go. All, are you afraid of the dark on you here? But, but, <laughs> but the main the main the main point stands, which is that um, you have to figure out. It's not about how much this stuff is worth, because if this stuff were being distributed at market price, it would be worth almost nothing. Um, because we can all get distraction and entertainment from each other, from our loved ones, from walking outside, or for any number of quality websites for free at this point. So the only people who are we're going to be able to charge money to make a living doing it are the people who can coerce you into paying them. And I think that this is a big argument that I have that, um, that net neutrality is going to, is going to fail. Um, not because I think it should fail, but because at some point the market pressures are going to become too great and the amount of money to be made is going to become too great and the corporations will force um, net neutrality to go down so that the cable companies, which are the only people really in a position to establish a, a, a real control, a real vice grip over the flow of information, the telecom companies who can you know, price the, the flow of bandwidth over their system, which is very much something that exists in the real world and is a fixed asset, um, the, those people are going to be the ones who are going to be able to start charging you for stuff. Um, so that's my, I th- that's my, my pessimism of the day. Is that like, Well, this is, I mean, this is, I think, the idea behind Comcast buying NBC Universal, right? Uh, yes. Well, I mean, Comcast, yeah, is, is that it wants its own content. Um, and, and also, yeah, so that it doesn't have to negotiate. It's vertically integrating. It's like Rockefeller. Right. It's like yeah, Rockefeller. Exactly. Like, and so for those people who aren't familiar with, with vertical integration, like the textbook example is if you run a railroad, right? Um, and you have certain inputs and you have certain you know, outputs. And your inputs are you need coal, you need steel, you, know, you need equipment. Um, and then, and you need trains. 
uh, and then and you need labor, and then you know your outputs are um, you know you create this service the passengers use, and and so on and so forth. So. Or shipping, um, or what, what have shipping. you? Yeah. And you need land, and you right. need, uh, and you need like train stations and things yep. like this. So, so a vertically integrated company, um, a horizontally integrated company, buys up all of the train stations mm-hmm. and buys up all of the railroad tracks. Uh, a vertically integrated company owns the stations, the tracks, the trains. It owns the coal company. It owns the company that you know that runs the concessions in the train station. You know, it runs the. It owns the steel mill. It runs the company that works in the steel mill. It it distributes the. It, it transports the steel on its own railroad cars, so that it can control its costs up and down the supply chain and increase its profit margins, and so that it can basically squeeze people at every point in the in the line, and that it isn't in a position like ABC, like Disney and. Um, Comcast were where they're negotiating over over price because that because not having to negotiate is so much more profitable than having to negotiate. And in entertainment, the the um, the huge vertical integration model is the studio system in the golden age of Hollywood, where the um, the studios owned. Uh, the stars, they owned the writers, they owned the directors, they owned the talent, they owned all the means of of making the films, of post-production, of distribution, they owned theaters in a lot of cases, right? And this all kind of, this all kind of fell apart. And now, you know, entertainment has been a, um, has been a series of, of, um, well, media, I should say, has been a series of horizontal monopolies, like the most prominent one of which is the cable company, which really now has a monopoly in moving information in and out of your house. Mm. Uh, like, who, who, who has a landline provided by a telephone company anymore? Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like, well, we do. Which, well, but, okay. Well, but good the cable for you. company is also, but Verizon is also a cable company and a telephone company. They're just not our cable company. Right. right? Or don't they do the stuff? They do like cable internet? Maybe they don't. They do. But, um, um, uh, Verizon does uh, uh, fiber optic internet. They have a service called FiOS that they deliver. Um, they deliver cable over. Uh, yeah, that's right. They deliver television over that. Actually, I wish I could get it because that, that I think is the best at the moment. I think you can get up to fifty megabits on that. Well, anyway. it's funny. It's funny because this is what we're talking about on Oscar night, right? Like we're talking, and I think that that's relevant. We're talking about like the vertical and horizontal structure of the distribution of this information. Um, I mean, maybe it's because there weren't too many big acceptance speeches that I was all that wowed about or anything like that. And we can talk about that more in the future. Um, but just everything's so devolved, and everything is is sort of, um, and it really. I think the first sign of this that really struck me that the, this was like the new, the new way of doing things was was back. Um, you remember when Jiggly came out? Yep. Um, yeah, Jiggly, as it were, the uh, Ben Affleck, Jennifer Lopez, uh, awful crime love story, sort of assassin, retarded kid. Thing. Yeah, uh, I don't want to use that word, but, but sort of the appropriate word. Um, the notable thing about that year is that Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck, who had this sort of very public relationship, in, in case you're a youngster and you're not familiar with this halcyon day in American history, um, you know, Puff Daddy giving them his and hers Rolls Royces and whatnot, they didn't really make anything that made any money for themselves. Right, like they didn't make any movies they, that really were successful. They didn't appear on TV, but they were on the cover of People magazine 51 out of 52 weeks in the year. Hmm. Um, so People Magazine made a lot of money selling magazines with that picture, that picture of these people, and they didn't get money for the pictures that were taken of them. So what you're seeing is the sort of net demand, you know, the, the final demand in the chain 
for the good that's for the good that's being produced here, of good or service, what have you, of like Benefer, the demand for Benefer, as it were, um, is not controlled by Benefer, and it's not controlled by the people around Benefer. Um, it's jockeyed up and down on the supply chain by the different media providers, and maybe it's People Magazine that makes money. So in this case, maybe it's um, ChannelSurfing.net that makes money off yeah. of the Oscars. Or it's so the, the Oscars um, still make money; they're still profitable. They're just not profitable for the people who are investing the money in it. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's a, well, it's and that's a, and that's a. I mean, that's a problem because like the whole the whole thing about putting on a big expensive award show, you know, is that you can sell expensive commercial time against it on uh, broadcast network television. I mean, it's a problem with property rights in general because part of property is the right to make the the fruit, you know, the fruits of your property. Like the value that your property generates is your value. It's not just about owning the land and being able to put a house on it. Right. It's that you know you put the work in you. You put investment into it with the confidence that you're the person who's going to be able to reap the profit when the profit comes around. Right. So if you put a lot of investment into something that you own and you don't get the profit out of that, there's a certain similarity between that in the case of, say, you know, an Oscar broadcast where the Oscar people who are putting it on don't don't manage to scoop the profit out because it's going to all the magazines and the blogs and the and like the and little tiny tiny bits of like you know hundred ad clicks here hundred ad clicks there and like these these sort of other websites and stuff um, to and it's similar for as far as this business ought to be concerned to like a government intervention that's going to scam a lot of taxes off them or is going to like say that they don't have the rights to the things that they think they have the rights to. Um, I mean, it's it's not equivalent from a moral standpoint, but I feel like it's an, it's a similar challenge, and it really raises the question of why you're in making these investments in the first place. Now, the Oscars, I think that they do make money, and they're and certainly Hollywood wants to keep having them, and and they're good for everybody. They're win wins. Um, nobody wants to get rid of the Oscars, but the, there really are like a lot of people, you know, underneath that utter like mouthing up at those as those. Uh, those teats, as it were, and like taking their little sip. I mean, we're we're part of it. That's kind of much grosser than I want it to be. Um, I apologize for that. <laughs> well, we're part that of it. Like- yeah, I mean, that's that's true. We have a. I think there's a difference between. We're not rebroadcasting the the Oscar. We have a, a value add, which we have defined as overthinking. That is to say, we bring right. a certain style of analysis to uh, the culture we symbiotically. Uh, you know, consume and and you know, uh, honestly, like if I could sell CPM, if I could sell ads on a CPM basis against this podcast, I would absolutely do it uh, because it would allow us, it, uh, it would allow us to to uh, uh, make a better podcast. I could kick mm-hmm. in a little bit towards your towards your cable bill, for example. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, we actually just those uh, just those chicken poop uh, Google AdSense ads. We for the first time. Um, oh well, it's a combination of those, uh, some of the affiliate stuff that we do, and the generous donations of our uh, of our listeners through the donate button on Overthinking It that have that have after two years of just pouring my pouring my cash into uh, OverthinkingIt.com and then like moving to hosting that costs many 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 hundreds and hundreds of dollars when. Um, you know, when we hit it big with some of the IMDb stuff and with 40 inspirational speeches, uh, we have now reached the point where, uh, where we have broken even, right? But it Woo-hoo! took us that long. And it, yeah. and it took us – I mean the amount of content on overthinking it is incredible. There are like 850 articles on the website, uh, each of which – well, not all of which, but many of which represent a substantial effort. Many of which come go into the, you know, four and five and six thousand word territory, which is, you know, that's like medium-sized New Yorker piece territory. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, yeah. my my point was, uh, I was sorry, I was just riffing on the idea that you were um, uh, that you were bringing up that we are we are in a sense part of it, part of this new uh, part of this new world. Now, concomitant with the um, concomitant with the uh, rising cost, or uh, concomitant with the um, uh, uh, declining profit potential, you know, mm-hmm. of making entertainment uh there is a declining cost to making entertainment because the you know a lot of tools uh are now at the kind of commodity level like uh cheap high quality camcorders and things like this uh you know video cameras that um uh that you can make uh you can make video product that rivals in quality you know anything before seven or eight years ago um, well, you know, my you my my favorite uh, my favorite take on all that is like the whole thing with you, that Uwe Boll says about like you know oh you with your brother and the ketchup you make your movies like you think that if I don't make movies you're going to get the money that I have. you're not going to get the money I have to make movies like do you you know you the idea that like Uwe Boll thinks yeah you hate him but he thinks all your movies are terrible and you can go ahead and do better because it's not exactly that expensive you know what I mean it's not like uh, anybody's stopping you. So you're on your own worst enemy when it comes to not being able to make movies, so, <laughs> as, it, as it were. That's well, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly I can't live up to the masterpieces of Juve Bowl. That's you know, that's, <laughs> that's true. Alexander in the in the chat room says, "Woo, you guys are almost profitable, almost." And the profit, <laughs> you know, the profit that we may see over the next two years is, you know, um, five or six dollars per annum. So you know, and then we and we, then we have to pay our taxes on that too. <laughs> well. Which is kind of complicated. Um, <laughs> well, also, I don't think I don't think I mean, we really yet, qualify I mean, as. I'll say this: I don't think we qualify as profitable as long as we're taking donations from our readership. Um, and like, what I would say is that we're solvent, right? <laughs> you know well, I mean? we break even. It's, we don't. Yeah. I, I no longer lose money, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, on the on the uh, on the site. But like, hey, you know what? I think that's fantastic. I think it's wonderful that we, mm. you know, that the audience has stepped up uh, and said, you know, we care about this uh, this thing. We like it enough to support it with, you know, a donation of. 20 25 we've gotten 50 uh 75 dollars like we uh we appreciate that anyway sorry i don't mean to make this a it's not this is not like npr pledge week right like i I, sorry i really didn't mean to take this into the territory of you know uh would it kill you to hit the donate button on the homepage? but hey would it kill you to hit the donate button on the homepage? <laughs> Pete, right, should we actually talk the about Oscars. the Oscars on the yes, Oscar show? Back to the Oscars. So here's the thing. So as a, as a, there is a siphoning effect where those of us who are profiting a small amount off of the Oscars um, – uh, become part of this larger economic uh, project of the Oscars. But the side note to that is that we do add a lot of value. And the Oscars is kind of an event this year. I thought it was pretty exciting, and I thought it was made more exciting by the satellites around it and all the people tweeting about it. And yeah. Every site that was talking about the Oscars had, had a Twitter, and somebody was talking on the, the live stream about how there was live interaction between the people on the red carpet and like their Facebook and Twitter fans and exactly. and, and followers, that there was this national – almost like a national festival of of media and moving pictures um it makes me think about um you know bowling alone that book bowling alone that came out a number of years ago uh let me i'm going to double check who wrote it robert putnam so robert putnam wrote a book about the sort of collapse of america's social capital called bowling alone 
And the sort of central metaphor of bowling or central statistic of bowling alone is that um, just as many Americans bowled uh, today as did in the past, um, the number of bowling leagues has gone down considerably. Right. The idea that people haven't changed what they do, but they do it with fewer people and they do it um, alone, like they do it by themselves. And what does this mean for our country? Um, and I know we have a global audience, and I think that it's kind of naive to assume this is only happening in America. There's a lot of social dis, you know, disjointment and change that happens all over the world constantly, and I think this is one of the big trends of the past 15 years. Um, I feel like now when you're seeing the – when we're really going over the tipping point with the Twitters and with the, the various um, – you know, uh, new media. It's not even Web 2.0 anymore. Like these sort of new media, social media, really socialized media. Uh, these sort of socialized technological solutions that incorporate this sort of devolved um, method of generating content. And and content is is even like a misleading word for what it all is. Just all this this back and forth, this communication. That's Noise, really chatter, uh, chatter. Yeah, many. May, I'll call it many to many. It's like it when when it when this many, when the many to many really ramps up. Yep. Um, I think you see a rise. I see the sort of reassuring rise in the social capital. Now, of course, it's troubling because who gets included in it, and who doesn't. But at the same time, if you read the trending topics on Twitter, you'll realize that the Twitter audience is pretty diverse uh, and has a lot of. I mean, they love Justin Bieber for one. Um, but that's another thing that you'll figure <laughs> out. By the way, um, I don't know if this will still be the case tomorrow, but. I, I posted this, and I hope that somebody saw the brief flash where this was like the top uh, Twitter thing. But if you went into Twitter and you searched for Gollum, and I urge you all to do that now if, if you have the opportunity, search for Gollum on Twitter, and you'll see all the jokes that people are making about Precious and about Gollum. And it's like, I'm so funny because I made a joke about Gollum and Precious and the movie Precious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look how clever I am. And I mean, I, I, I was going to make that joke myself. And I was like, how many other people are making this joke? And it's like all over the country, hundreds of people are making the same joke that you're making. So is that um, is that incredibly depressing because it, it oh, i find oh, it hilarious and awesome because we're all doing the same thing it's awesome um, it, you know there is more that unites us than divides us <laughs> i mean yeah it means that if you want to be like you know the the big swinger on the block you have to do a little bit of extra work but who you know who, who whoever minded that i don't really mind work um so yeah uh, so yeah so there it is. So I mean, I interrupted you. You were you were going on about stuff too, about Oscar-related stuff. I just oh. was saying that, that this was like a movable feast, and it was simultaneously existent like all over the world. Like I was well, watching. Yeah, and really- I I think the um the the effect of it, the effect of all this many-to-many communication uh, events going on around uh, around a central event is that it focuses. Everyone is focused on the central ev- the central event even more so you know, than they would have been otherwise. Like, if I'm just, you know, I don't know, making dinner or something, and I have the Oscar on in the background, uh, mm-hmm. then it's just a distraction. But if I'm engaged on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot, then I'm really intent on the Oscars because I want to keep up with with my friends and keep up with the social interaction uh, that's going mm-hmm. on around the show, which is why I don't understand... Uh, I mean, I mean, I guess it's scary for people who are used to uh, traditional one-to-many kinds of communication, like broadcasting. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's scary that they can't control the message in in these mm-hmm. many venues that that pop up. But it's got to be a net positive for the Oscars because it's focusing more attention on the Oscars by having uh, by enabling all this chatter. Um, this chatter around it, you know? Well, it's positive for the event and for the economic profile of the event, but you also have to consider the, the ROI of the people who run it. Mm. Um, 
And so I think it is positive. I mean, we've seen with it. I think Avatar hugely benefited from social media, hugely. Sure. I mean, nothing, very little else descri- like explains why so many people want to see this freaking mediocre movie. Uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't keep humping that you know dry horse, um, <laughs> which is not really um, a, a phrase or idiom at all. But uh, but I mean, I feel like that the social media really pushed that over the tipping point in a major way. Um, and I think it's going to be more of the same. I think that it pushes us farther into what Nasir Taleb would refer to as extremistan, the world in which Gaussian distributions and normal distributions don't apply and where um, you know, a spare few will have huge surges in traffic or in interest uh, and where um, the, sort of the center of gravity of various activities will, will shift very drastically in accordance with seemingly random events. Uh, and we all have the opportunity of enjoying it and coming along for the ride. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Alexander. Alexander uh, points out in the in the chat room, you know, Twitter making you take notes about your entertainment habits. Yeah, this is true. I love that Twitters are limited to 140 characters. Oh, it's I fantastic. love that. It's no, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great limitation, and it you know it, there are already certain conventions of the of the form. It's like a haiku in a way that like you know certain things you have to do certain things to make a successful Twitter. Um, so okay, so the chat room wants to talk about the horror montage. Uh, the um, I.E. Geth says the same thing that I said on the Twitter stream, which is by what stretch of the imagination is. Uh, is Twilight a horror film? But it was nice to see some of those things in the in the yeah. horror montage. It was nice to see the Blob, for example, yeah. in the horror montage. Uh, though it was the remake and not the original. Uh, it was the color remake and not the uh, black and white original Blob that was um, that was on there. What do you think that was? I mean, what what do you think motivated that, Pete? Did you? I mean, did you get a sense? Uh, what motivated? Well, I think the big telling thing was that you know the the people came out. To talk about it was it wasn't so it wasn't Robert Pattinson it was the other dude from Twilight right yeah so he is he 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 is the guy who went through a big personal transformation between Twilight and New Moon right so I think it's important to indicate that this their presentation was not about Twilight it was about New Moon New Moon until this very weekend was uh, I think or maybe even after I think because I heard some buzz that this weekend there was another record breaker but it was the highest it was the biggest opening weekend ever right it was New Moon um, and, yeah, and maybe Moon Alice in Wonderland now or, yeah Alice in Wonderland might have top New Moon again you're seeing or for something I mean it wasn't it can't be the biggest opening weekend ever I'm sure like one of the Star Wars prequels or you know one of the special edition re-releases or something like that is the biggest opening um, weekend no, ever no no New Moon beat all of them New Moon beat, New Moon beat all of those guys beat Spider-Man wow. beat Star Wars guys okay. I mean the opening weekends didn't used to be so big they've gotten bigger because of the extremist end effect of like more greater proportions being concentrated um, you know the rich get richer the poor get poorer that yeah. sort of thing that's what happens Happens when you sort of unhinge, unhook things from predictable Gaussian distributions, and things kind of sway back and forth through these. The, not sway is the wrong way of putting it. I mean, it's more like these self-reinforcing feedback loops and these um, ways in which the random chance drives people and herd mentalities and and, and so forth. Um, uh, so anyway, yeah. So I think the first thing they said was that it was the most popular genre film, um, right? So they, they think they mean that in terms of money. All right, it's like horror movies make a carload of money. And what is the number one complaint about the Oscars that I hear? Well, other than that's boring or it takes a long time, they don't focus on things that people actually watch. So there's that wonderful, wonderful bit that I loved, where uh, Chris Rock went to the what's the Magic Johnson. Right. Yeah, I, I love that bit too. Though it got it got panned, you know. But it was by brilliant. The, it got panned for being too close to the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they, uh, and they no just, one at the Magic Johnson theaters in in uh, oh you know wherever he was in. Um, 
you know, South LA, no one had heard of uh, any of the Oscar nominated films. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, did you see? Did you see White Chicks? And they're like, oh, that movie was so funny, you know. Yeah, and and let's exactly. like, the movies that people actually watch are different from the movies that get Oscars. And I think that's a big part. That gap is a big part of the driving irony of our site. Right? Okay. Yes. Sort of- number one rank. Still number one rank. Uh, best opening weekend. New Moon. Uh, One hundred forty-two million dollars. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I think that, that way, also one of them uh, was best for the season. Yeah, little little industry gossip because I have a friend who works at Summit or who who used to work at Summit. Um, they didn't lock those actors down for the whole series. So now, now that it's a huge success, you know, and that those kids are stars, now they're negotiating with them. <laughs> you know, someone's calling Scott Boros for Christ's sake. Someone's gonna get a ten year, hundred and seventy million dollar contract. Yeah. Someone's gonna a rod that. I want to see some Terrell Owens action. Um, <laughs> But yeah, yeah. So I think that um, that that what you're doing is it's a it's an attempt by the Oscars to respond to the feedback they've gotten that they don't acknowledge the movies that people actually watch. And I think that that's why um, it's the horror is put forth there. I think that's why New Moon gets put out there because it was really popular. Now, of course, you know my opinion about Twilight and horror. I wrote right. about it in a think tank a while ago. Right. And if if you guys didn't read this piece, my notion about Twilight. Um, it has to do with path dependency and the idea that you classify works of any sort of media or fiction with a, that classification has path dependency. It, depend, it depends upon where you start in your calculus, and that's going to affect where you end up. So if you have two movies that have more or less the same sort of itemized qualities in, in proportion, um, the example that I used when I was talking about it were um, – Twilight and I Am Legend, though I was mostly talking about Blade, um, where where Twilight starts as a vampire movie and I Am Legend starts as ostensibly like a zombie movie, um, yeah. and the two kind of well not then the two was kind of move Twilight moves away from being a vampire movie because it doesn't have things that are characteristic of vampires, mm-hmm. and I Am Legend moves towards being a vampire movie because there's things that are characteristic of being of vampires, such as like a guy walking around in daylight to and monsters that are asleep in boxes or in like enclosed spaces and killing them because. When at night they come out and they're much more powerful than he is and this idea that they sort of have a secret society and all this other stuff um so twilight remained within the oeuvre of horror only insofar as much as it as it begins in its sort of evolution of, of what what is it a change of what is it a revision of what tradition does it come from uh, it comes from a set of symbols and characters that are characteristic of gothic horror and from gothic horror and very very firmly anchored in gothic horror mm-hmm. so even as it departs from the genre of horror film it retains enough of its characteristic and and it is that the characteristics are affected by the path that it's taken to the place where it ends up sure so if you had if if you had a Hugh Jackman, Meg Ryan movie, like an older person romantic comedy, um, which was about a bunch of people who like worked at a water park, and it turned out that the water park was haunted, right? And the movie is mostly a romance, and it's got Meg Ryan and Hugh Jackman in it. It's billed as a romance, but it's got this sort of like creepy element to it. It would not be a horror movie at all. Um, you know it, what I mean? Yeah, it would be a romantic comedy with horror. Yeah, and in fact, you could add a lot of horror elements to a romantic comedy and still have it be a romantic comedy because it grounds itself very strongly in the tradition that it comes from. Yep. Uh, and so that, that's my notion about that stuff. So the, stuff, the reason that they had the horror montage was they were trying to apologize and make up for the fact that a lot of the time they highlight movies that people don't watch. And this was – this in their calculus, this is what people watch. And this that, is what well, people right. Watch. And that – I mean I think calling it 
Mm-hmm. What do they say? The most popular something, something, something? The most popular mm-hmm. film opening weekend of all time or the most popular mm-hmm. horror movie ever or something like that? I, yeah, I forget yeah. exactly what the verbiage was. I think popular makes sense. I mean, because people vote with their wallets. I think it's, it, it's, uh, it's fair to say something is popular when a lot of people go see it. But Streisand, at the end, in her intro uh, to the best picture, and, and this actually, this was something... <laughs> Uh, let's let's take a little tangent here. The announcer did it, and then Streisand did it, right? Where you know, one could be the first uh, female best director, one could be the first African American best director, and then there are three other douchebags. Yeah, exactly. You That's know? how I tweeted it. Too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like yeah. then there, then uh, yeah, and one could be a uh, uh, you know, I don't know, white male oppressor, you know, um, <laughs> uh, working on his so own, working, to, working yeah, on his yeah. own material, no less. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so. Um, uh, Streisand called Avatar the most successful movie of all time, and I suppose that is true if you're talking about about uh, finances. But if if you're one of us who believes in something, you know, like art, right? Uh, saying that it's the most successful movie of all time is is not totally fair, perhaps, because like, what is your criterion for success? Let's talk about biology for a second. What would you say is the most successful animal in the world? Right. Uh, Probably. Or even like the most successful order of animals in the world. Insects? Yeah, exactly. And you know why they're, they're successful? It's because they proliferate widely. They multiply widely, right? They have a great fecundity. They, insects really own the world, and we're just sort of riding along with it. Like, as much as we talk about the negative effect that human beings have on the biosphere around here, like, our effect on the biosphere and our role in the biosphere is not nearly along the scope of the role that insects have in the biosphere. Right. Um, you know, uh, an entire row of crops can be, you know, delimited by a crop, you know, by a combine, but, like, the lotus swarms can deforest an entire continent and whatnot and all that other stuff. So insects are, are a huger part of the biosphere than humans And artistically, are. what is it? So, well, I mean, there are short-term and long-term measures of art, artistic fecundity. Well, right? here, here's, yeah. I mean, what I was going to say is that I dispute that, that Avatar is, Avatar is the most successful film if you want to consider the, like, what, the number, a sort of calculus that has a weighted average of the people who saw it and the money they paid for it. Right. But it's certainly not the most successful film from a return on investment perspective. No. Because it costs that would be like Paranormal Activity or the Blair Witch yes. Project or something. Yeah, Paranormal Actually, Activity. Actually, yeah. both horror movies by the by. Yeah. Or it very well may be some random pornography movie that cost $100 to make and made it like, you know, a half a million dollars or a million dollars. I mean, think about that. Like, you make a porno for 500 bucks, And I hate to say it this way, like... Please, like, don't take this as a sort of behavioral suggestion as to how you should live your life. But I'm a big fan of pointing out in terms of the business of movies that Hollywood is not the only way that you can make a commercial film. So if you consider, like, a person who makes a movie, like, in a random back room for, like, $500 and then distributes it and makes, like, $10,000, they have made a much higher order of return on their investment than Avatar has made. Right. Right, which costs two hundred million dollars, or at least right three hundred million dollars. Here's the and thing. Back here's the thing about that. The the, the, the five hundred dollar budgets never include anyone's time, and the two hundred million dollar yeah. budgets do include people's time. Yeah, that's true. Hey, Pete, yeah. uh, your video's not coming through, so cut it off because it's compromising your audio quality. Oh, um, sure. And I want to talk about. I, I actually, I want to talk about this. Um, this idea of artistic success, right? Because like, uh, I, uh, like I said, I think there's short and long-term measures of, of artistic fecundity. Uh, w- uh, in the short term, there, there is something like this idea of a weighted average of how many people went to see your movie and what they were willing to pay for it. So it's a yeah. kind of, um, you know, it's a kind of, uh, 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 what popularity it's a measure of popularity. Um, 
another one is your prominence in in the community. But then you know we're so we're so used to saying seeing works of art a hundred years later or or you know d- decades or, or centuries later where it's like well this was not really well received, um, you know in its time. Uh, you know, in in its contemporary environment, but it became influential, and so I think that influence is the real artistic fecundity, right? Influence is the way that that art reproduces uh, one artist's influence on on another, and uh, you know, the the best example in English letters, which is my the, the field that I know the most about, is Shakespeare, obviously, and um, there was a whole period there uh, for the you know 150 or so years after he died when he was not all that highly thought of, you know, mm-hmm. and not produced a lot. And it was, it took the, uh, you know, I don't know, it took the, the late um, 18th century and the kind of the, the flowering of the romantic movement in, in Germany uh, and then moving to England, you know, it took that to, um, to uh, get Shakespeare kind of back on the map. Uh, but now he's the most, you know, influential uh, uh, dramatist, kind of literary figure in English, right? And so, yeah. you know, what, so there are two d- distinct measures of of success there artistically. Yeah, I mean, also consider that there was a big war that shut down all the theaters in that part of the world for like quite a while. Yeah, it was a right? bad time for Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a bad time for England specifically too, sure. and then a bad time for Europe in general. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there are different measures of artistic success, and and I think that. Um, I mean, I was a little bit off-put by Barbara Streisand's announcement because it was so in the face of the black community. It was such like a, and I mean, I don't think it was. I think it was just so negligent, and it was so like my team and, and how awesome my team is. And I just kind of found it kind of kind of repugnant. And I feel like that it wasn't like okay. So maybe if we want to talk about like race and gender for a second, right? Which I know our, our people love us talking about these things. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, my, my sort of general ethical framework along these things is, is kind of like a post-Marxist way of looking at it, or Marxist way of looking at it, really, which is that our, the distinctions that we make uh, and the constructions we make around race and gender generally serve to divide us and cause us not to work in our, our own common interests with each other. Um, and, and so we are all hurt by the prejudices and the, and the relative advantages that we achieve over each other as identical political groups are all trivial next to the net disadvantage that the great mass of people suffer by virtue of losing so much time and effort fighting each other when really we should be improving our own lot and also fighting against the sort of elites that have us clamped down and whatnot. Um, and so Viva I, I am very... Evolucion. I know exactly, and and so like the you know the the you want to alleviate prejudice because you want to open up people's uh, awareness of themselves as a class of people, and you know the great class in itself is not the proletariat or the bourgeois; it's human beings. So it's sort of like a more Steinbeck way of looking at at the sort of that view of the world, which is that recognize that we're all family and we're all part of the same you know great project, and and maybe you want to extend that to animals too and plants, and that we're all we're all on this together, and as such. Um, you know, our our subdivisions serve mostly to allow us to be victimized. What doesn't really com- comfort me is when groups that have been, um, you know, oppressed and disadvantaged by the system chop. I, I use the phrase "chop off Vader's head on Dagobah and see their own face." Right? Like, like come out there and it's like, "Ooh, isn't it a victory that like my, it's, this is the day that my team won?" Uh, because you, if you don't see the liberation from the oppression that you've suffered is some sort of way of, of an opportunity to sort of unite people. 
and, and see the class in itself, then all you're doing is redrawing the lines and creating the same problem. And and while the, yes, you know, there's going to be a great deal of vindication at the wrongs that are committed against your group relatively, right? Like to the wrongs that are committed against other groups, you're missing out on that upside of being able to look at what you guys are all losing. By right, not right. You're, you're you're not you're failing to question the terms of the discourse. Like, do female directors, and I say female directors and black directors, both suffer from the subdivisions of race and gender in the show business, right? And as such, like, per, you know, advancing this subdivision, even if your team is doing relatively better, is still not in your best interest. Um, and it, we should really be searching for, you know, an industry that, you know, judges people not by the quality, you know, the color of their skin, but the content of their chase scenes, you know, <laughs> like right. their, uh, how well, how the weather, you know, and all that other stuff. So I don't, I don't like this idea of it sort of like getting the blocks getting so calcified and it's all fighting each other. Now well, it's better when problem, we all have this This was the problem with, Stry- with Streisand, right? And you, t- yeah. you tweeted about this, that we're her saying, you know, it's about time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, sorry, yeah. I, I, I wasn't going to put words in your mouth because you did the tweet, but I'll put I'll put uh, words in your mouth that you know by, by kind of celebrating that victory in a particular way, uh, by celebrating that victory, uh, quay victory, right? Yeah. Uh, you you end up um, uh, recapitulating the the uh, the kind of the terms of the kind of oppression that was the problem in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, which is what you're saying. Exactly. You're, 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 yeah, exactly. You're just becoming what you despise. You're advancing the problem, and you're just proud of yourself for putting yourself in a somewhat better situation. Now, this is not. Um, help me here. Oh gosh. This is not to take away uh, from the sort of real achievement of, uh, uh, you know, Catherine Bigelow winning a. Uh, Catherine Bigelow. Sorry, I just blanked on her name. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and that's that's telling, of course, because I have my own prejudice. I'm sure I try very hard, but you know, whatever. Well, you I didn't, didn't like you didn't like that movie very much, or you liked it oh, fine, liked but it. didn't think. Yeah. yeah, you liked it. Catherine fine. Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow doesn't think of herself that way. You read any of her interviews; she doesn't think of herself that way. She made Point Break for Point Break for Christ's sake. Right. You know, like Catherine Bigelow thinks K-19, of herself as a director. The Widowmaker. You know, yeah, exactly. Like Catherine Bigelow makes movies. Catherine Bigelow works. Right, she gets shit done. Like her job is not to worry about who is getting the given awards and like who is getting the right written amount of recognition. Like that suffers, you know, that's something that happens in the sort of production area of things and the PR area of things. Like I, I from what I've read about Catherine Bigelow, like she seems to get it and understand. And she was making these movies that I would, I would venture to say more important movies or have caused greater net happiness than the Hurt Locker caused um, at a time when it was much harder for women to do that, right? So she has cred, and she's done all this stuff. It's not really to take away from her achievement or even to put words in her mouth. This isn't even really a... That's the other thing, is that when it becomes about women, and when we play I Am Women, Hear Me Roar, like, what a diminishment that is of Catherine Bigelow's work. Sure. Because Catherine Bigelow didn't do that for women, Right. You know, I mean, I don't want, and I, and I don't mean that as no, like, yeah, yeah. She did it for humankind, or for the story, or for yeah. the to do justice to the experience of yeah. the, you know, uh, of the the soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. And when I say she didn't do it for women, I, I want to acknowledge that there's a signifier and a signified problem there, um, because it refers both to you know more than half of the human race, but also to like a much smaller like interested political group. Now, a political group that I tend to support and and like. Right. But at the same time, like not everybody feels like they're a part of that. Certainly not all women. 
uh, are part of the group of, the te- of Team Woman, you know, like Team Jacob and, and Team Edward and right. whatnot. So all, this was no, all, team- all women are part of either Team Jacob or Team Edward. That's though. true. Well, if the Hurt Locker was made for Team Women, there would That's be some terrible. women in it. Now, wouldn't there be? Right? Like, there are no women in the Hurt Locker. There's like, there's like one woman who has a very small part. Um, there's like, you know, and so like, it's not about women. Yeah, Danny Glover's really daughter. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Vandy Glover's in the condom commercial. No, there's, there's, it's not about women. It's not for women. It has a lot of the same structural problems and sexist problems that um, the uh, team women have a problem with in movies that is justifiable, and we can talk about that. Um, it's not. This again, it reinforces my long, my or my sort of X to grind, which is that the specific characteristic, identity political characteristic of the person in charge of what is going on is not necessarily going to dictate what agenda it serves. Right? So that, like, a female screenwriter can write movies for men. Yes, she can do that, too. You don't have to write a movie for a woman just because you're a female screenwriter. Like, we're not all on this. We're not all on these subdivided teams. We're on Team Humanity. Right? Yeah. Um, and then, and, and, I mean, I want to see the Oscars reward Team Humanity. That was something else I tweeted about, where I was thinking, how much longer do you think the foreign language film right. Oscar has left? Like, because I feel like we're getting to the point where movies overseas are really legit now in a way that they might not have been in the past in terms of budget and uh, special effects and and yeah yeah camera, for which you know, see you quality. know for which see the the thing about democratizing the means of production the point that I made earlier yeah and also things like City of God and and movies that are made I mean movies that are made outside the United States and and well, uh, the funny thing is most American movies are made outside the United States these days well no it's not fair to say most but you know do you know how how much of Hollywood's output is produced in Canada. You know? Oh, tons. Yeah, Vancouver. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, like America has kind of priced itself out of its own labor market in a way. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that's that's sort of what happens in a classical economic system. If you have a concentration of capital and it's it's sort of not being efficiently allocated, it'll eventually get allocated elsewhere. Mm. Um, you know, but, you know, our grandparents didn't have refrigerators, so, you know, <laughs> it ain't so bad. Um, <laughs> you know, like, like what, did I, what did I tell you about art that one time, right, Matt? Which we had that conversation once, um, where you were like, "Man, it was when the economy was really going into the into the pooper." Um, I'm sorry, I meant into the bathroom. Um, <laughs> the economy was really going into the bathroom, and uh, and you were like, "Man, this is going to be a tough time to make art because we're not going to have enough money and to live." Yeah. And I was like, "Well, actually, it's a relatively easy time to make art because usually the problem with art and money is keeping up with the Joneses and the sense of self-respect, right? That it, it you need as a human being that you often don't get because art doesn't provide you with like a professional livelihood." Um, well, guess what? Uh, it's a great time to when you're making art and you're in the shitter. The Joneses are also in the shitter in a bad economy, and so like, yes, it's harder for you to get by, but at the same time, you the 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 currency of respect is easier to come by as an artist in times like this. I mean, I think you see that in a lot of the literature around the Federal Theater Project, um, the literature of theater in the Depression, where there was a sense, I think, of energy and legitimacy in the craft. Uh, even though it wasn't doing very well, it was most actors were even more actors were unemployed then than are now, which is staggering. Um, <laughs> but sure, um, but yeah, but you know what? You get what I'm saying there. It's like you know the economy is bad, and also like money is flowing out of um, you know the United States and developed markets and developing markets where it can get a better return. You're going to see more functions going on there. You know, worst comes to worse. You have you see well, worst comes worse. There's a big war, and that's awful, and I don't want that to happen. But that happens in a lot of these kinds of situations. There's going to be a big war, and I hope that. That doesn't take place. Um, 
I mean a big war. But, uh, but you know, other than that, worst comes to worst, like the standard of living in the United States and in other developed markets drops precipitously. Well, it would and be we, global. Would, well, yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be – I think that's going to be the case in, in any case because we can't uh, – we can't maintain the disparity in, in standard of living, you know, without a big war or the, or the threat of one anyway. Yeah. Um, and so – and so that means that – but at the same time, like, are we so – decadent that we can't th- imagine ourselves living with a lower standard of living like it, like people adapt and we will be fine um, as long as we don't go totally crazy and we hold on to the things that matter um you know the people and the respect for each other and all that other stuff we'll be okay so even if there's a time in the oscars where there isn't a foreign language category and you have an, a movie that's in spanish that's nominated for best picture like there was like city of god was um or that was in portuguese sorry i think right um and uh and you know, all of a sudden, maybe the Oscars move away from LA and they happen somewhere else in the world. Is the Academy going to go global in that way, like to stay competitive? Is it going to get outcompeted by a global film festival that will like make the Oscars obsolete and become that sort of Web 2.0 event across Asia too and across Europe and Africa as well? Like people live tweeting Edison Chen and you know in Hong Kong. Is that what's going to happen? Um, it's possible. The, you know, the Oscars needs to evolve to stay competitive. But the worst comes to worse. You know, people are more important than money. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm well, sure I've actually. Fun. I mean, I, I think my thinking about it has developed a little bit since we had that. Since we had that conversation, I think that you know, and I was probably speaking mostly of uh, uh, professional theater because that's my kind of milieu, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I actually think it would not be such a bad thing if some of the institutions that we've built yeah. around professional theater went belly up. You know, people will make art. People will make art. People will make it in their garages. They'll make it in the you know in the. We will make art in the streets. We will make art mm-hmm. in the city. We will make art in the fields. We will, you know, make art in the backs of our cars. And it's not, you know, we'll tell stories and sing songs and and do this. Mm-hmm. But right, if if uh, you know, if uh, music piracy makes Live Nation go under, well, I'm not going to shed a tear. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh no, you mean like I can't pay twenty five dollars for a CD anymore? Like, since when was that ever something that should have been normal? Right. People get these set points in their yep. minds, and it happens yep. so frequently where it's like every gain or loss, you want to pick the most advantageous place to gain your ga- gauge your gains and losses from. And I understand it as a negotiation tactic, but if you really internalize that, and that's what you really believe, you're doing right. yourself a great disservice. Right. You know, because you shouldn't think about where you are in terms of where you were yesterday. Always, you should think about it in terms of where you could be, and the sort of larger realm of possibility. Which, in a place where, like the you know extremistan, where things are move rapidly and shift rapidly and don't conform to normal Gaussian distribution, could be anywhere. You know, so of course, at the same time, like the Oscars is a powerful, powerful demonstration of the. Um, influence and gravity of consensus right and the idea that we still do have centralized authorities right so so yeah um we didn't get to the oscars at all really i mean in terms of an analysis of anything christoph waltz he won right i didn't see him he won awesome he won monique won awesome christoph waltz was great inglorious bastards the two big movies here's my big takeaway for the oscars the two movies that you really ought to see um, that didn't really get the credit that they – it's not the credit they deserve, but these are movies that don't really need the approval of the Oscars in order to take up their role in our culture. Right. And those are, um, I really think, Up in the Air and Inglorious Bastards. Sure. Right? So these are, these are the two takeaways. Up in the Air, yeah. I think, more than more than Inglorious Bastards because I have the feeling that Up in the Air was, was made – uh, was made to reflect American culture or was made mm-hmm. to show – to give American culture news about itself, 
right? Mm-hmm. And Inglorious Inglorious Bastards, I think, is more idiosyncratic than that. You know, it's it's more uh, it's more the product of a strong voice, right? Rather yeah. than rather than an attuned voice, a voice that's attuned to to where the culture is at. Yeah, I mean, Hurt Locker is a great movie. You know, one bet. Picture and I've ragged on it a little bit that it didn't deserve the degree of praise that it's received, but only it's only a matter of degree. Like it's a really good movie. Check it out. I'll probably end up watching it again at some point. I certainly haven't liked my subsequent rentals from the red, red box as much. Like <laughs> oh Christ! Red like, box. <laughs> I mean, red box. Like fant- you know, fantastic idea of idea of like how the how the industry is changing. You know. Yeah, I mean, like I watched this Buster Rhymes movie, Breaking Point. Uh-huh. Oh Christ! Like it's Buster Rhymes. Tom Berenger and Amanda Sante are in this movie. And you you see this like, oh man, it's like a cop who goes outside the law and like a drug dealer who's the toughest guy on the streets. And you're like, this movie's going to be awesome. But Buster Rhymes in it. It's going to be so bad. It's going to be funny. Brutal. So sad. So incredibly sad. Like in the first 15 minutes, there's like a baby that's kidnapped and a mother is murdered. And like there's a guy who's like separated from his wife and his son. Say the, t- say the title again Breaking Point. Oh, okay. And Buster it's all Rhymes. about what? Buster Rhymes and Baking Point. Breaking Point. Buster Rhymes is a fun guy to watch on film. He's in Higher Learning, which is a wonderful movie, um, and he's in Shaft 2000. He hasn't been in a ton of stuff, but he's a fun guy to watch on film. And he and I watched the interviews after, and basically he felt bad because he felt he could only do this one kind of character on screen, and he wanted to show some depth. But unfortunately, the thing is just so joyless and so difficult to watch. Um, it's a, an example of the power of marketing. Like, if he wants to be a serious actor, he should pick a movie that's kind of halfway, and not. He, I don't think he should try to be like you know freaking like darker than DMX. Yeah. Like, do a romantic. <laughs> you know what you should do is a romantic comedy. Do a romantic comedy. Here's if you're a Buster Rhymes and you're listening. Here's what you need to do. Yeah, you, you don't go get, full. Yeah, you don't go. You never go full retard. You you do a romantic comedy about an aging rapper who well, not aging, but a rapper who has grown up and is kind of looking to settle down, right? And it's a comedy because he has these street friends that he no longer feels in touch with. They keep doing absurd things and getting in fights. And he doesn't really feel comfortable with that anymore, but he feels like he has to stand up for it for his masculinity. And then there's a woman in his life who he really likes who's maybe like a lawyer or like, um, you know, a co- make her a teacher, like a high school teacher or something like that. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and like, uh, and like, and like, and, and yeah, there's, and, and that she is this stabilizing influence in his life, but, you know, they have to come to terms with who where he comes from, and she kind of likes that, too, and she doesn't want him to totally go away. So there's, like, an uncomfortable scene where he goes to a party in a tuxedo, and he's not very happy, and he, like, screws up by talking to his friends in the parking lot, and then she finds out, and she's upset, and he has to apologize. Like, like, and we go back and forth like this. I feel like if Buster Rhymes... Forked off, forked Buster, off, forked here's off. Thing, Buster Rhymes is charming, Right. Like, Buster Rhymes is a charming performer, and if he doesn't want to do crazy, off-the-wall, like, give me some more kind of stuff, like, take advantage of your charm and your likability, and don't feel like you need to do something about people getting bloody murdered all over the place. Uh. And maybe – and your agent is not doing you a favor by right. putting these Yeah, pictures. yeah, your Just management like, team is not is not doing a favor by, by making yeah. that thing for you. Jeff Bridges wins for Crazy Heart. Everyone expected it. It ended up going to Sandra Bullock. Guess it was her time. Uh uh, up, well, animated feature, no surprise there. Though, the, you know, I, I don't watch a ton of uh, animated uh, feature films, and the, they all actually looked pretty interesting and made me want to watch all of them. Uh, Avatar for art direction, Avatar for cinematography, uh, The Young Victoria for costume design. It's always the costume dramas. I actually thought that was pretty classy. Uh, the, the costume design winner who also won for uh, Best Hat. I, I seem to yeah. recall. 
I was I was looking at those nominee videos, and every single picture was somebody wearing a crazy hat, like either like a sort of weird redesigned top hat or something that had a crazy mask attached to it or yeah. something. And it was, it's really great that in this day and age, like I remember the makeup one. It was like there's still Oscars for makeup. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like you know what? It's nice that they still give a hat award that people still appreciate a good hat. Well, it's so a, yeah, I, I call her the Meryl Streep of hats. Yeah, she's won like the Oscars and she keeps getting nominated all well, the time. Well, for these costume dramas, I like though that that she. she she um, gave a shout out to like, look, here's a shout out for all the all the people making normal movies, you know, mm. that don't have hoop skirts, you know, mm. petticoats, a bustle, a, a yeah. bodice, you know, a whole bunch of period uh, uh, period costumes. Um, that that seems to comport with the overthinking it, uh, the general overthinking it philosophy, which is that you know what, it's hard to make. It's not just hard to make the Hurt Locker. It's hard to make a Lethal Weapon. You know, yeah. And if you think it's easy to make lethal weapon, go do it and become a millionaire. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the greatest example of that is Love Actually. Yeah. Like watch Love Actually. I mean, there's no CGI really. Like the camera movements are all pretty predictable. Right. And and it's like pretty flat a lot of the time. It's colorful. It's bright. But that movie, I I think that movie's so brilliant, yeah. and it's such a great piece of work. Um, yeah. So I mean, it's not you don't have to really transcend anything. It, there's not very little that's transcended about that movie. It's not like The Godfather, where you feel like you know something about there. There was some sort of like lightning that struck, and they reached this sort of greater attunement with the purpose and mission of art and film. Yeah, of cinema. Yeah, no, yeah. no, it's a good piece of craftsmanship, and I think I mm-hmm. think we appreciate that. I don't think that gets enough respect. A good piece of craftsmanship mm-hmm. gets enough respect. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. All right, moving moving in. Uh, uh, directing Hurt Locker mm-hmm. documentary feature, uh, The Cove, piss off the Japanese, uh, <laughs> right? Um, it's going to be hard to give out. You know what? The documentaries are going to start suffering the more this gets globalized because there's a lot of governments out there that don't like what these documentary films are talking about. Yeah. So you're going to see some sanitized documentary films in the future, I think, too. Um, well, yeah, maybe that make it to the Academy Awards, but this is the mm-hmm. thing that, like, uh, you know, Hulu is actually pretty pretty damn strong in documentaries. Netflix instant streaming is really yeah. strong in docs. Um, yeah. You know, so there are going to be there are going to be alternative channels that aren't theatrical theatrical motion pictures. I mean, if anything, the idea the thing that's going to change the Oscars is that the idea of theatrical motion pictures is going to become obsolete. You know, right? Anyway, uh, okay. Documentary short film editing, foreign language film makeup. Don't care, don't care, don't care, don't care. Music original score goes to Up. Original song goes to uh, goes to Crazy Heart. Uh, animated short, don't care. Animated live action, don't care. Even though this this very podcast, episode one of this very podcast, if you um, if you go back to to the beginning at overthinkingit.com slash podcast uh, and listen to episode one, I'm not saying I recommend that, but if you were to do that, uh, it took us till like episode 13 or so to find our stride. Um, if you were to go back, you would find that that this podcast began in in 2008, uh, actually t- just about two years ago, right? Um, mm-hmm. Wow, we've been doing this thing for two years. Not yep. every week for two years. We've only been doing it every week for a year and a half. But uh, you'd find that our first episode is about uh, Oscar-nominated short films of the 2008 Oscars. Mm-hmm. Sound editing, sound mixing. Oh, hey, that was a good. That was a good package. That was a good uh, video package about um, uh, sound editing and mixing, right? Yeah, I really love that they actually explained you the differences because yeah. they never did that before, and so right. it didn't make any sense. Yeah. So, and having Morgan Freeman do it was hilarious because it's like an IMAX movie at like the Museum of Science. Or exactly. Something. Yeah. Well, it's also—I <laughs> mean—he's the voiceover guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. 
uh, visual effects uh, uh, went to um, Avatar. Uh, Precious. What? Yeah, it went to Precious. <laughs> uh, adapted screenplay, Precious. Original screenplay. It's like they created a whole race of people that aren't in movies ever before. Like, right. where did they come up with these people? <laughs> I've never seen a movie with such exotically imagined people like Precious. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, you know. <laughs> if you're just talking about movies, the 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 Thunder Smurfs in Avatar have a cinematic li- lineage, and like Monique and Precious and Mariah Carey, well, Mariah Carey, but Monique and, and um, uh, what's her name, Gabby Sidibe, right, do not have a cinematic li- lineage in the same way uh, that the Thunder Smurfs do. <laughs> yeah, do, do, do you see what I? Do, I mean, I, I feel like I'm I'm buggering this point. Uh, I don't understand what you mean by cinematic lineage. That that. Um, there is a tradition of filmmaking, uh, to which Avatar belongs, uh, to which mm. the blue aliens in Avatar belongs. There's a tradition of cinematic characters to which those characters belong, uh, even if they take it farther than it's ever been taken before. Whereas, yeah, yeah. Well, cause they're basically footnotes on James Fenmore Cooper. Right. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, that, and, and a bunch of movies, like, you yeah. know, a bunch of, uh, John Smith Pocahontas movies. Also, yeah. you know, a bunch of sci fi, right? Yeah. Like, their footnotes on, uh, uh, who are the blue characters in Star Trek? Uh, are they Andorians? Um, well, oh, whatever they, whatever they are, you know, they like, that's been done. You know, there've mm-hmm. been cat people before there've been blue people before. And just because they're, they're, uh, painstakingly rendered by computers with extraordinary beauty, uh, you know, that doesn't make them, um, uh, uh you know, that, that doesn't make them a, a, a totally new creation, but, but, you know, precious, those are the kind of characters that movies, uh, have tended to avoid. Yeah. Well, you know, what do you mean, like, like, um, like really brutalized people, or like people who are, um, like, what, what do you mean by the the that? What do you mean those people? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what I'm really getting down to. Like, how would people. you? Char- I haven't seen Precious, so how would you characterize the people in Precious? Well, I haven't seen Precious either. So yeah, I'm exactly. Talking out of my ass. Fair um, enough, fair enough. But uh, you know, it seems like they're they're. Um, uh, it seems like those characters are not there to make white audiences feel good about themselves. I mean, I mean, that's what a lot of the buzz around the movie was concerning, right? Um, was that? I mean, I don't know. I, maybe it's because I was influenced by a couple of editorials I, I read by black people who found the movie to be offensive, yeah. and not offensive, and not just offensive, and like a more offensive and like really like do we really have to keep putting up with this and is this what people is this what people think is real i think it's i think people i think the reactions i read of black people's rea- reactions to precious were similar to the reactions i read about military personnel's reactions to the hurt locker yeah where it's like it's not so much that the thing itself is a huge travesty it's that the it's like exhausting to think that this is what after all these years people really connect with and think is real because it's not really where it needs to be and it's unnecessarily insulting well the, the, i mean, know what I mean? I, yeah i don't know it's a memoir right isn't it or no it's a novel it's of course there's novel yeah. in the ti- in in the title um yeah i don't know what the truth claims i i don't i don't really know how to um how to parse the truth claims of a lot of gritty gritty movies, right? Because I think that when you step into the realm of the representational, uh, 
the 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 truth claims become problematic and like presenting a slice yeah. of life even when that's even then when that is what is uh purported to be going on uh that's not what's going on you right. know um yeah. but, well this is not a this is not a thing that that we're going to solve is is precious well, I, we were right there we were about to solve it what <laughs> are you talking about um i i don't know all i say is like you know I don't know. I watch actual like <laughs> I was going to say like watch actual good movies about black people, but I haven't actually seen um, Precious. I'm, for all I know, Precious is great. Like I haven't seen it. I shouldn't be kidding. I actually don't like Monique very much, and the main reason that I don't like Monique is because I was a big fan of Showtime at the Apollo, and I thought she was a terrible host of Showtime at the Apollo. Yeah, she was. She was so much worse than Steve Harvey. It was ridiculous. Steve Harvey was such a great host of that show. Yeah. Now, of course, like this is like me saying that I don't like Madonna because she didn't make it into like fame when she auditioned and had a terrible audition you know it's like people do different things and they're good at different things yeah so um so yeah so i should not resent i mean for all i know monique is great in that role i just don't like her because i didn't like her in uh in that no of course somebody oh, here's I was the thing here's what the political thing was there was a lot of buzz and kind of backlash about how monique quote-unquote wasn't campaigning for the oscar and somehow oh. didn't deserve it because she wasn't hitting the she wasn't hitting the the trail, you know, kind of stumping for the movie the way um, someone like Jeff Bridges was stumping for his performance in mm-hmm. in uh, Crazy Heart. Yeah, yeah, that she wasn't doing it because she said that she was proud of the. So when she said she was proud that the Academy gave the award. Not for the basis of politics. Yeah, right, but the not on the not on the basis of who's been out ass kissing and glad handling. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, on the movie's publicity budget for the last See, that, month. That's not how it came off for people. No, like no, no, me. no, no. It didn't. Yeah. It didn't come off like that at all. Yeah, it was kind of a miscalculated sort of thing to yeah. say. Because what it came out as was sort of a racial thing, where it's yeah. like I'm not going to win this Oscar because of my race, and I kind of hate the Academy for having thought that way. But it was really about Oscar campaigning. Okay, that actually makes a lot more sense. It was a yeah. It was a it was a real um, slam that, that on Halle Berry the way you. <laughs> the way the way you read it um hey you know what you and i are good at doing a whole episode of podcast of the podcast with no one else none of the other writers on the uh shouldn't even call them writers podcasters when we podcast Mm -hmm. we're podcasters on the thing uh thanks chat room you guys have been great uh keeping um keeping us uh uh, keeping us on on track here. Someone suggested a title, which is like you know the Oscars podcast, in which we don't get to the Oscars. Um, so uh, thanks. You can find us next week uh, Sunday. We'll be back to the normal time, six fifteen Pacific, nine fifteen Eastern. Those are American times. We get uh, listeners as far away as Holland and uh, Finland and Australia tonight. It's wonderful. I love the. Um, I love the uh, oh, <laughs> Evie Debs in the chat room says you ignored the Oscars. We largely ignored you, and that's actually true. The chat room was having a great, great conversation about horror movies uh, while we were, you know, talking about the the means of production and and the uh, machinery <laughs> of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers and whatnot. So catch us on the uh, catch us on the stream next time. Uh, if you have anything you want to add to the conversation, podcast at overthinkingit.com or two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Make sure to leave your latitude and longitude so that we can read it out. In degrees, minutes, and seconds, uh, 203-285-6401. We are still uh, waiting. I have uh, half a dozen or so. We we are still. We want more voicemails where you call in and yell, nerd!
words uh, at us. And if you have anything to say about the Oscars that's actually about the Oscars, maybe we'll take it up next time because Pete and I have been uh, <laughs> Pete and I have been going in some other directions. Uh, but we've solved a number of things, including whether Precious was offensive and the business model for uh, the the entertainment business in the um, in the coming century. So hey, you know that's a net positive, right? <laughs> I feel like you got to be a lot less insecure about the quality work that we do on this podcast. <laughs> so, hard, uh, it, you know, if you liked our crappy podcast, well, okay. Um, I guess there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> <laughs> you want to bring uh, bring us home? You want to bring us home, Matt? And until next week, you can find uh, my co-host Peter Fenzel. Thanks, Pete. No problem, Bob. And myself, uh, Matt Rather, on uh, www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Uh, I'm wearing Elizabeth Berkeley. took her down with a tranquilizer dart and I skinned her alive and I'm wearing her. Look at my handbag.